Morning, everybody. I have to admit, because of that musical thing, um, I'll be referring to my notes a lot more this morning than usual because uh, it took me away from a lot of my studies. But however, we're in John chapter 2 of our study in the Gospel of John. And uh, if you turn with me there to chapter 2, the first 11 verses. Before we read, we will pray. Our Father, what a blessing. Look at us, Father, sitting here with your word before us, opened. What a divine gift. What a privilege. What a blessing. To have the actual words of the living God in our hands, freely open, that we may know you and learn about you and have eternal life through this knowledge of you and the knowledge of your Son. Bless your word, Lord Father, as it goes forth. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, We have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not come. His mother said to the servant, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tested the water and <clears throat> that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it, where it had came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests had had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in, uh, disciples believed in him. Uh, last week, um, someone close to me received a gift uh, from somebody for her graduation. It was a very special gift. It was a very dear gift because the gift was from her grandmother. Her grandmother who had, uh, sorry, passed away quite a few years ago. And uh, it was reserved for her for, the, for that special day. And there's a special note with it. So it was a very emotional time. And uh, first thing I thought of was, um, sorry, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, encouraging them to have hope about those who have passed away. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud uh, command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
words we were very, very familiar with. Um, the reason I mention this is because this call of God, this, this trumpet, this is wedding imagery, isn't it? You, know, you think of um, Jesus' parable of the ten virgins when they're waiting for the bridegroom, right? Then there was a call, there was a trumpet, right? That's how G, uh, Jewish um, weddings worked, right? They, they were um, promised to one another, but then there was a time, sometimes up to seven years before, the, before what's called um, the chupa, or the, the, the consummation of the wedding. When the, when the bridegroom would come with, with, with his friends calling and blowing, blowing the, the shofar, calling to, to the bridegroom and her, and, her, and her friends, right? The ten virgins in the parable. Be ready. Here comes the bridegroom. Now is the time. And they, and, and they go to the, the father's house and, and then there's the consummation, the chupa, and the wedding feast. And then, you know, and this is what I see, what Paul's writing to the Thessalonians here. You know, have hope, right? There's a wedding coming. There's a wedding coming. The bridegroom is coming for his bride. The church, you, have hope. Do not be despaired. So we see wedding imagery right, right through, through, through the entire Bible. So it's, it's not surprising that Jesus does this first miracle at a wedding in Galilee. But what is surprising, really, is the miracle itself. Because really, it's, um, compared to a lot of his other miracles, it really, it's really quite insignificant, isn't it? Isn't it? All Jesus really accomplished with this miracle was that he just saved a wedding groom and the, the, the master of ceremonies from a social embarrassment, right? And really, Jesus really didn't provide a solution that, that, that was not available outside of his miraculous power, right? Because I, the way I see it, um, I don't believe Mary was expecting Jesus to perform a miracle. When she said to him, they're out of wine, I think Mary was given a responsibility to take care of this at the wedding ceremony. And Mary was designating Jesus responsibility of going to fetch the wine. There would have been wine available. So that's why Mary said to the servants, do what he says. I don't think she's expecting Jesus to perform a miracle. She's expecting her son to be obedient to her. We're out of wine. We discussed this beforehand. If we run out of wine, take the servants and go fetch more wine. You may not agree with me. This is what I'm saying. Because I say this because there's no real evidence in the scripture that, that would suggest otherwise. There's no evidence that Jesus performed miracles beforehand that Mary would be expecting this. I think this was just a natural process. So I believe that Mary was just as surprised that Jesus turned the water twine as she was. So the, the, the miracle, like I said, was really not that significant in the, in the fact that it wasn't something uh, that was accomplished that could not have been accomplished. But what was significant about the miracle is that it was a sign. A sign from Jesus. His first sign. A sign of who he is. All that he is and what he came to do. And at that point, it was really only a sign to his disciples. And from what we understand, there's only four men, right? Andrew, Peter, 
Nathaniel and Philip. So Jesus was performing this sign for these four men, those who would, after him, go forth with the gospel, those who would be the gospel to the world in the future. So Mary says to Jesus, um, um, they ran out of wine. But Jesus' response is actually quite fascinating, isn't it? Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not come. So why did Jesus say this? We don't really know, right? The scripture doesn't really say, but I'm going I'm to share with you an answer that I, that I got um, from a commentator, a um, Presbyterian pastor and author named Tim Keller. And he says, because they're at a wedding, Jesus is reflecting on his coming wedding. Right? That would be, that would be normal, right? If there, you, you get some of you here when we were, when you were engaged, but you were invited to somebody else's wedding, you're sitting there, you're watching them get married, and you, right? You're thinking ahead. I'm getting married soon. You know, what's my wedding going to be like? And Jesus is sitting there thinking about his wedding, and he's thinking about the cost. The price that it's going to cost for his wedding. And that price is the hour, isn't it? His hour. So you can understand if Jesus is sitting there thinking about all this, and Mary comes to him, they're out of wine, and Jesus is thinking about (laughs) what's coming ahead of him. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not come. It's one man's explanation. And, uh, but let's talk, talk about this hour. What, is, what, what does it mean? What is this hour? What is this price, this cost that Jesus is about to pay? I'm just going to read some, some scripture um, verses about hour that Jesus says. John 12, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Matthew 26, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He went a little little further and fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He went a second time to pray, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then he prayed a third time the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And Mark 14, go a little, uh, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed, If possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup for me, yet not what I will, but you will. So we see Jesus um, is equating his hour to, to trouble and sorrow, to being delivered into the hands of sinful men and to the Gentiles. And he equates this hour to the, to the cup, right? The cup of God's wrath. And he prays, take it away, pass it from me. You know, it's interesting when you read... Um, 
about Jesus later, apostles and, and, their, and his disciples, about their suffering when, when they were persecuted and killed. They did so with such joyous hearts, didn't they? If I could read something from Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's about Andrew. Furious at, at Andrew, the, lead, the commander demanded to know if he was the man who had recently overthrown the temple of the gods or persuaded men to become Christians, a superstitious sect that had recently been declared Ill- illegal by the Romans. Andrew repeated, uh, or sorry, replied to the rulers of Rome, uh, I need better light here. Andrew replied that the rulers of Rome didn't understand the truth. The Son of God who came into the world for man's sake taught that the, uh, the Roman gods were devils, enemies of mankind, teaching men to offend God and causing him to turn away from them. Uh, by serving the devil, uh, men, men fell into all kinds of wickedness, Andrew said, and after, uh, after they die, nothing but their uh, evil deeds will be remembered. The proconsular, uh, the proconsul ordered Andrew not to preach these things anymore or he would face speedy crucifixion. Whereupon Andrew replied, now listen, I would not have preached the hour or the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. He was condemned to be crucified for teaching a new sect of taking away the religion of the Roman gods. Andrew, going towards the place of execution and seeing the cross waiting for him, never changed his expression. Neither did he fall in his speech, his body, uh, his body fainting not, nor did, it, uh, did, did his reason, uh, sorry, his reason fail him. As often as happens to man about to die, he said, "O cross, cross most wonderful and longed for, with a willing mind, joyful and desirously, I come to you, being the scholar of him who did hang and hang on you, because I have always loved, uh, always, sorry, I have always been your lover." and yearned to embrace you. So Andrew, this embracing, looking forward to being crucified. Do we see this in Jesus? I know we have that verse in Hebrews 12, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But the scripture doesn't really say that Jesus went to the cross joyously, joyfully. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, for the knowledge of what his suffering would accomplish. So why the difference? Matthew Henry asked in his commentary, Why art art thou cast down, blessed Jesus? Why art thou distressed? If we go back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, we find God walking through the garden right in, in the cool of the day, longing for fellowship with Adam and Eve, longing for fellowship with, with those he, he created in his, in his image. But we're very aware where God found Adam and Eve. They were standing in the trees, cowardly, hiding from him. God questions Adam, what have you done? And of course, Adam blames the woman, the woman that you gave me. The woman blames Satan. So God, in his sovereignty, curses all three. It's fascinating what we find in God's curse upon the serpent. We find a promise there, don't we? A futuristic promise. A prophecy. That he, the serpent, 
will strike the heel of the woman of, of the man who God refers to as the woman of the, uh, the woman's seed. Now we advance ahead to the uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press, and we see now this seed of the woman, this this promised person to come, Jesus, shedding droplets of tear, uh, droplets of sweat like like drops of blood, obviously in agony of what's coming, of what lay ahead. In the center, uh, Satan enters, enters Judas, and, and the troops are deployed. And Judas kisses Jesus and betrays him. Then the serpent of old delivers his strike to Jesus' heel. What God calls his heel. But what we see as just a, a bitterly, deadly assault on his life. We could learn a lot from the book of Joel, right? About God's relationship with Satan and how God uses Satan to his own purpose, to his own will, to reveal himself, to reveal his purpose, his glory and grace, his mercy and love. So God uses Satan here in the garden to to fulfill his plan of salvation, to deliver Jesus to the scribes and the Pharisees into the hands of Gentiles, So uh, it's interesting when you compare Job and Jesus, right? So God uses Satan uh, in Job's life, and Job, you know, for suffering, and Job, um, relatively an innocent man, complains about his suffering, believing that God has abandoned him when really he hasn't. But Jesus, an absolute innocent man, knew that he would be abandoned by God. Do you, do you ever think about this? this? This is just a fascinating thought. That Jesus of Nazareth was the only person in entire history who God said to, if you obey me completely, I will crush you and send you to hell. What a sobering thought. If you are perfectly obedient to my will, if you are perfectly obedient to my law, if you love me with all your heart, soul, and strength, I will forsake you and leave you. And for once in your internal existence, you will know what it means to be separated from me. So this is the hour that Jesus is reflecting on. This is the hour that has brought brought so much misery to him in the garden. This is the hour that he pleads three times to his father that it may pass from him. This is the hour, the cup of God's wrath. So this is the hour Jesus was thinking about at the wedding when his mother tells him that there's no wine left. Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So from verse 5 to verse 10, we have the, the, the narration of the actual um, the changing water to wine, the miracle. I don't believe we should read too much into that. You know, there's a lot in the commentaries about you know, what, what the water represented, what the wine represented, the, 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 um, the jars, because they were clay, they were men and whatnot. I don't believe the scripture actually 
clearly defines that. I don't think it's proper to um, assume things. It's not like uh, Jesus' parable of um, right the sower, where Jesus explains that the seed of the word of God and all the you know all the different soils and what they are. That's not apparent here. That's not clear here. So I think John is just using these verses to explain the miracle, what had happened. But verse 11 is very important. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's talk a little bit about the glory of Jesus. So here we have an occasion for Jesus to reveal his glory, like I said, to these four men, for, to his disciples, to prepare, to prepare them for uh, greater teachings, the miracles, the greater miracles that they would see, and of course, after his, after his death and resurrection, that they would be prepared to go forth to be the church, to be the, to be the gospel. So just, again, some verses about Jesus' glory. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Right? We read this. So this is Jesus talking about his hour. No, uh, no, it was for this reason I came. Then Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Jesus is talking about his coming suffering, his crucifixion. Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I got 10% left of my battery. Uh-oh. I have... <laughs> Where's Jim? <laughs> Jim with his new smartphone. I have uh, a future came, a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it. I will glorify it again. John 17, Jesus' prayer. I have, I have brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work you have, you have uh, gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So it's interesting to see here, right? That we see. Jesus is saying that his coming hour, his crucifixion, glorifies the Father. And through it, the Father glorifies the Son. Isn't that fascinating? You know, if you were to ask somebody, ask a Christian, especially new Christians, um, why did Jesus die? Right? The answer is always about us, isn't it? He died for me. He died for our sins. He died to redeem us, to set us free. Have you ever heard somebody say, Jesus died to glorify the Father and that I may be glorified through Him? Isn't that so human? Just, you know, it's all about us. Gospel is all about us. Salvation is all about us. Glory, glory is a word that means, in, in the Bible, that means weight. Something that's weighty. God, you know, you think, uh, so, so there, there, there's a prime example. How, uh, how weighty is God in your life? How does God have more glory than you have in your own life? Or when you, when you are uh, planning your life, going through with your life, you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to do this, and God, I'll just put you over here, because I can move you, God, because you're not as heavy as I am. You don't have as much glory as I have in my life. But if God has full glory in your life, if God, if God is heavier than you, well, then you plan your life around God, don't you? It makes an extreme difference. We had a brother read from Revelation this morning and just go through those verses again. Revelation 4, You are worthy, O Lord, o God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they, uh, they were created and have their being. 
Revelation 5, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and your blood, uh, and sorry, with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You had made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and the Lamb uh, be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So here we, here, here we see the, the, right, the, the Lamb of God, the slain Lamb of God, that uh, he brings glory to the Father. And, and, and in, the, in the Father's kingdom, God, God brings the glory to the Son. Right? The whole all of creation bowing down to him, glorifying him for what he has done. So all of this from changing water to wine. Well, it was John's first sign to which he revealed um, his glory. And through it, he also, um, through it, many believed in his, his disciples believed in him, in him right? And we're almost out of time. Um, I wanted to talk about believing that, you know, believing is just, just not that single day that you, that you profess Christ, right? In the Bible, believing is a verb, continual action, to go on trusting, to go on accepting and affirming the truth that Jesus taught, to go on living for Christ. Hmm. I'm going to go back to Satan here for a while, just to close. When Satan, come, when Satan the accuser of the brethren, comes before God, and says, look at him. Look at her. You know, accusing them of their sins and their faults and their, their absence of love for him. Satan's intentions, we know, are, in, are malicious and wicked, right? But, but for some part, you know, there's some truth to what he says about us, isn't it? About our sin, about our wickedness, about our lack of love for him. But what Jesus, or what Satan says, sorry, by no means persuades God's response towards us, does he? Or what he thinks about us. However, when Satan feeds us lies about God, that he's uncaring, that God doesn't love you, look at all the suffering in the world, God doesn't care. We believe Satan sometimes, don't we? And we question God's love. We're persuaded by Satan sometimes that God doesn't love the world. Second Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays and powers through signs and wonders to serve the lie and, and in all ways the wickedness and deceiving those who are perishing. They perish. Ah, it's dead. <laughs> We're just so blessed, so grateful that John has presented this sign to us. Like I said, it's not a miraculous sign. It wasn't raising from the dead. It wasn't like feeding the 5,000 from, from a, um, a little boy's lunch. It was a sign. Who he was, what he has come to do. And many have come to believe in his name. We believe who he is. 
We believe that God sent him, just as uh, Moses came to his brethren. He did signs so that they would believe that he was sent from God. Jesus performed signs so that we may believe that he was sent from God. That we may believe that he is the bridegroom. That we may believe that there is a future wedding. That we may believe that we are his bride. And that he cares. And he suffered so that we won't have suffered. So he died so we may not die. We, he suffered separation from God. He suffered those curses from God so that we don't have, may not have to suffer them. What a blessed Savior. What a blessed groom we have. Looking forward to that day when the shofar is blown and, and Jesus calls his church home. But till then, brothers and sisters, have hope. There's a wedding. There's a Savior who has come. There's a groom who is coming to call us home. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for glorifying your Son. Jesus, thank you for dying that you may glorify the Father. Thank you that the Lamb was slain. Thank you for this look into your kingdom, to the throne room, where the the seraphim were flying around, covering their, their heads and their feet, but then crying out to one another, day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Father, we, we just thank you for revealing your glory to us. Thank you for revealing your love, your compassion, and your mercy on a sinful people. Help us not to believe the lies of Satan, but to believe the truths in your word. In Christ Jesus.